Lord Jesus, we just desire to gather around you this morning to sit at your feet, to be taught of you. We pray, Lord, that that we would just see the wonderful things that are in your word, Lord, that we would be drawn to know Jesus more this morning. And so, God, we just ask your spirit's blessing upon this time, God. Give us a spirit of wisdom, revelation, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so back into 2 Samuel. Um, We've been in this narrative that has to do with the rebellion of David's son Absalom. And uh, this, this story, this account, this narrative actually spans seven chapters, okay? So we've been in and out of 2 Samuel a little bit. And this morning we're just looking at, at uh, two, two chapters, 17 and 18. But the story actually spans from 2 Samuel 13 to 19. And so for the sake of our poor memories and for those who might be just jumping on board with us, let's back the convoy up. And uh, remember how we got here, okay? So Absalom's rebellion had its roots in the sins of his father, David. You remember King David had taken another man's wife uh, in an adulterous relationship. He had covered up the fact that she had gotten pregnant by uh, murdering her husband. And on the outside, everything looked like David had gotten away with the sins that he had been involved in and committed against the Lord. But inside it was eating him up and the Lord sent uh, the prophet Nathan to confront him with regards to his sin. And Nathan used a parable, a story, it was probably fictional about a rich man who stole a poor man's lamb and it enraged the shepherd heart of David. And so David said, that man needs to pay back fourfold. That debt should be repaid fourfold. And Nathan spun the story, remember all this? Back on to David. He said, David, you're the man. You're the man. And uh, the Lord has given you the kingdom of Israel. And if that wasn't enough, he would have given you a lot more. Uh, How could you do this sin against the Lord? And so David repents of his sin. And nevertheless, uh, Nathan says to him, the prophet Nathan says to him that... uh, Because you've committed this sin against the Lord and against the home of uh, another family, the sword will not depart from your own house and the baby that's been born of this relationship with Bathsheba will not survive infancy. So in many ways, as we've been going through this, we've actually seen David get repaid fourfold on the part of the Lord for his sin. The infant died. His daughter Tamar went through this terrible experience that we read about in chapter 13. She was raped by her own brother, the crown prince who was then murdered by Absalom. And then Absalom, as, as we're going to find out this morning himself, the king's son, is going to die. So there's like a fourfold repayment happening here for David with regards to his sin. And there are seven chapters that are committed to retelling this story. It's really weird to see your faces so clear this morning. Man alive. Oh, funny. So, so at this point... At this point, Absalom has led a rebellion against his father. He has declared himself to be king. You remember this, that for years he had been working towards this this plan. He had worked to steal the hearts of the people of Israel. Then he had gone to the city of Hebron, which was where David was originally crowned, the king of Judah. In that city, he, uh, you know, by intrigue and deception, proclaimed himself to be king, and then he made his way to Jerusalem with those who had joined him. And David wanted to spare the residents of the city from being attacked, so he retreats from Jerusalem. He heads down towards the Jordan 
a river valley where, if necessary, he could be able to, you know, put a geographic obstacle between himself and Absalom. And so these chapters this morning, um, this this is, well, the preceding chapters to what we're going to read this morning then tell us about different people and how they responded to David, what they did, how some came and, you know, said, you got what you deserved and threw stones at him, how others joined him in support and demonstrated their faithfulness to King David. And when Absalom made his way into Jerusalem, uh, one of the men who had switched loyalties from uh, King David to Absalom was a counselor by the name of Aphidathel. And Aphidathel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. And he had for a long time carried bitterness against King David for all of the trouble that he had brought into their family's life. And they say this, that bitterness is like drinking poison and then waiting for something to happen to the other person. You ever heard that before? The bitter pill is a poison pill. It poisons the one who chooses it. And in his bitterness, Aphidathel counseled Absalom, sleep with all of your father's concubines in the sight of the city. It's like a disgusting X-rated story, this public scene of what happens. And Absalom does it essentially sealing Um, the way shut for any potential of reconciliation with his father or for him to back away from the actions that he's done. Now, there was another counselor. uh, One of the men that rallied to David's side was a trusted counselor by the name of Hushai. And David sent him back and said, I want you to spy what Absalom is doing, what his counselors are telling him. Find out the plans Offer counter counsel and frustrate the plans of this man, Aphidathel. So there's lots of intrigue, lots of fun stuff happening in this story. David had prayed that the Lord would turn the counsel of Aphidathel to foolishness. And he and Hushai had established this system where they could get messages to David. I mean, this is like spy story, the whole deal, okay? So this is where we jump back in. David's on the run. He's put 25 kilometers between himself and the city of Jerusalem, okay? He's down in the Jordan Valley. Actually, I'll get you to chuck that map up just so we get our bearings. Absalom is in Jerusalem. He's designing his plan to get his father. And David's down in the valley down here somewhere away from Jerusalem. That's 25K. He's gone down to that lowest point on earth down near the Dead Sea there. So let's check it out, okay? Chapter 17, verse 1. Lots of text again this morning. It says this, Moreover, Aphidathel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men. I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring back all the people. I will bring the people all back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You only seek the life of one man. And all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and the elders of Israel. Now I would say this as we read this. This is a very good plan. This is good counsel. There's no record that Absalom was any sort of accomplished soldier, battle-hardened, you know, general like his father and like his men. And so Ephidathel's plan kept Absalom safe. It kept him in Jerusalem. It targeted the one man that mattered to eliminate, King David. And 
target him, take him out. Absalom already has the, the heart of much of the nation, so it's not like he needs to sell anything here. And Ephitothel would have the pleasure of seeing his bitter ruminations finally acted upon. It was a good plan. It seemed as such to Absalom and the elders, but God was going to turn it to foolishness. So check out what happens in verse five. Then Absalom said, call Hushai the archite and let us hear what he has to say. Now again, Hushai, he's in Jerusalem. He's a double agent, okay? He's working on behalf of David under a ruse of being a trusted counselor to Absalom. So verse six. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ephitothel spoken, shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel of Ephitothel that Ephitothel has given is not good. Say that name like 20 times, eh? <laughs> Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. I think this, I'm like, wow, uh, Hushai knows how to use a metaphor. The the king is like a, a, a mama bear robbed of her cubs. He has the heart of a lion. He is a mighty man and the men who are with him are valiant. These are not wallflowers, these are warriors. So in other words, Let's not underestimate King David. Verse 11. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the seashore for for multitude and that you may go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into the city, into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is found there. Now I just read this and I think, wow, this is totally appealing to a prideful man like Absalom who was hungry to make a name for himself. He himself could have had the opportunity to, he himself could have the opportunity to gather the entire nation to gather all Israel unto himself as one man, lead them into battle against his father, which would establish his name in the annals of history as the great usur- was among the great usurpers against a, a, a king, against his father's throne. This was a plan fit for a man who wanted to make a name for himself and to break out of his father's legendary shadow as a mighty warrior. Hushai says this, he's like, We'll light upon him like the dew on the ground. We'll smother him. If he's found in the field, he'll be crushed. If he retreats to a city, we will raise it to the foundations. And I bet at that moment, this is what I picture, Hushai let out an evil laugh like he was Jeff Bezos or something like that. 
Okay, the evil laugh <laughs> from Hushai. All right, verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ephitothel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ephitothel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So I would just say this the counsel of Hushai was not better. In terms of Absalom, Ephitothel's plan was far better, but Hushai appealed to the pride of Absalom. And David had prayed for the Lord to turn the counsel of Ephitothel to foolishness. And that's what we read, that the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ephitothel and to bring harm on Absalom. So now it's time to initiate the early warning system. So let's check it out. Get word to David. Verse 15. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abathar the priests, Thus and so did Ephitothel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel, A female servant was to go and to tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Barhuam, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought, they could not find them. They returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well, and they went and told King David. And David said, They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ephitothel counseled against you. Then David arose, and all the people who were with him, And they crossed the Jordan by daybreak. Not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. So it sounds familiar here, doesn't it? It reminds me of the story of Rahab hiding the spies. Hid them on the roof under uh, stalks of flax. These guys go down into the well. It had a false cover laid over it. There was grain scattered on it to disguise the well's opening. Those who came looking for these men did not have good intentions, and the woman was not obligated to help Absalom's minions with evil intentions, so she sent them off in the wrong direction. And with the coast clear, they got word uh, to David about what was being planned, and they told him, get your crew over the Jordan River, get that geographic barrier between yourselves and him. So verse 23, when Ephitothel saw that his counsel was not followed. He saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Wow, isn't this crazy? This is just, this is the fruit of the bitter root in his life. And sounds eerily like the account of Judas, doesn't it? Who hung himself after betraying Jesus. Ephitothel betrayed David. He knew that there was no going back. He had been uh, the primary conspirator with Absalom, and he was as good as dead. And so he hung himself. 
I'm going to, yeah, you want to just take her out there? That's okay, guys. And we'll just pray for you, Alicia. Ladies, maybe I'll have you take her out to the back, okay? Yeah, thanks. Let's just pray, you guys. Lord, we just lift up Alicia to you. And Lord, we just thank you for her heart, Lord, for you, your heart of love for her. We just pray, God, for just your spirit to comfort her this morning, Lord. You just bring peace to her heart and mind, Lord. And we just recognize, God, in these days, people are feeling lots of pressures, God. And we thank you that you're the comforter, that you're the prince of peace. And so, Lord, we just, we just cover her right now. We just uh, rebuke the enemy in the name of Jesus. We say the Lord rebuke you. And we pray peace over that heart and mind. Lord, we, uh, we give you uh, thanksgiving, God, because you're faithful and you're true. And you do not abandon us. You do not depart from us, Lord. And so, God, I pray, I pray that her heart and mind would be comforted with the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we just pray these things in your name. Amen. We okay? Okay. It's all right. God's Spirit's at work. People's hearts and lives. Okay. So Ephitothel had betrayed David. There was no going back for him. Uh, he'd been this primary conspirator with Absalom, and so he was as good as dead as it was. And so he took actions into his own hands. Now, verse 24. Then David came to Mahanaim. And, Abs- and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Again, again I'm just going to get you to chuck that map up there so that we get our bearings. Because this is kind of interesting what happens here. Mahanaim, that's where David escaped to up there on the top right, middle right of that screen. And Mahanaim was the very place where Ishbosheth, remember Ishbosheth? He was the son of Saul. When he rose to his father's uh, throne and David was. They're praying and singing. It's all good. Um, this was where, where Saul had Saul's son Ishbosheth had ruled from, and Abner uh, had sought to bring all of Israel over to David. This was the city that was involved. Okay, this was territory of Saul's tribe, Benjamite territory, and so there's David's men, and uh, they're hiding out there, and this is where it's going to go. The battle's going to move just to the area called the Forest of Ephraim. We're going to read something interesting about this in a moment. And uh, so let's check it out. Verse 25, it says, Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zariah, Joab's mother, and Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. So you have this man leading Absalom's army by the name of Amasa. Joab is leading David's army. And this is a total entangled mess. Because what I want us to catch here is that this is all family members. These are all extended family members. They're all relatives. This is a total Mess. I mean, if you thought Thanksgiving was complicated when all your family got together, that does not hold a candle to what was going on with this extended family, okay? So, verse 27, when David came to Mahanaim, Shobai, the son of Nahash, from Ramah of the Ammonites, and Makir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogulam, man, all these words, 
brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, sheep, and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Now this is quite the trio of men that bring all of these supplies to David. Shobai, it says, was the son of Nahash. His brother was the Ammonite rule. Just to, just to remind you of some stories to connect some dots here. His brother who was, was the Ammonite ruler who was once sick and David sent word to say, hey man, I hope you get better. And he took David's advisors and cut their robes in half at the buttocks. Remember that story? And sent them back in shame and David was so ticked, he went and laid a whooping on the Ammonites. Now this is his brother, the brother of this ruler, sends gifts to David at this time. Uh, you got uh, Makar, who was a powerful tribal chieftain of the, the, the Transjordan tribes, the Israeli tribes on the other side. He was the man who had sheltered young Mephibosheth. Remember Mephibosheth, the son of Saul with the broken ankles, a cripple, who was hidden for many years because they were worried that David was going to kill him. And when David found out this descendant of Saul's son, the Saul's son was alive, he, he brought him to the king's table and made him a part of his family. Makar had like done lots for the throne of Israel, uh, but he didn't play it safe here. He supports the king. You got Barzillai, who was an old man. We're going to read about him in chapters to come. 80 years old, could have been at home watching the news, sitting in his lazy boy. No one would have thought the worse of him, uh, but he wanted to support his king and be involved with what was going on in his nation. So these men brought an incredible amount of supplies and help and support to David. Now chapter 18, let's read on. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David set out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I will also go out with you. So David, here's this battle-hardened commander who knows how to organize his troops. He plans to go with them, verse 3. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood out at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by the hundreds and by the thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to the commanders about Absalom. Now, this is the heart of a, a father. That's what I think with um, David here. The heart of a father, everything Absalom had done to hurt him, everything Absalom had done to steal from him, to undermine him, Absalom had sinned against him, but his father's heart, in his father's heart, he didn't want to see Absalom hurt, even though he deserved much more. And so probably fair to say that the father's heart blinded David uh, to the realities 
This, this is a nation at civil war. To be gentle with the culprit is not realistic, but that's, that's what he commanded, and all the army heard it. Okay, verse 6. You guys all good? Okay, sweet. Verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. Remember that from the map. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and there was, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over all the face of the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Isn't that crazy? It's like the men of Israel versus the servants of David. You catch that there? The forest devoured more men on that day than the sword. It sounds like something out of the Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? It's, it's like crazy. But the Bible does not, you know, leave this out without intention. The implication is, is that God is working on behalf of David. God is working on behalf of David's men. There are supernatural things happening to defeat Absalom. God had determined that it was going to be so. You remember there was a time when David actually went to war against the Philistines and the Lord instructed him, when you hear the sound of the army and the balsam trees, then know I've gone ahead of you and you can go into war. This is the same sort of idea here. God is at work. There's a, a principle being repeated here. He's at work on behalf of David. Now verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule and the mule went under the thick branches of the great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. So th this is a little bit unfortunate. You know, in my house we say this, it sucks to suck. That's like the line that my kids and I like to use. Well, it sucks to suck. I mean, when you are riding on your mule through the forest and your hair gets caught in a tree, and you are left suspended there, and it rides out from underneath you, I mean, that is not a good day, okay? Now, you remember about Absalom? Remember about his hair? I mean, it, it, it's fun to joke about this. I mean, his hair was such a huge issue of personal pride that he had actually made his annual haircut into a national ceremony. They would wear his hair and the whole deal... The Bible tells us all about it. It's like crazy. And I, I remember we joked about this. Can you imagine being led by such a vain leader that he would allow the topic of his hair to be national conversation? And he didn't, you know, he didn't in humility turn those conversations from himself to something that, you know, concerned the nation. No, he revealed, it revealed his pride. And, and so, you know, you know, again, a few weeks ago, we joked about this. You have to pity a nation led by that kind of prideful lead leadership. And um, doesn't say anything about his socks in this text, but I don't want to read too much into the story. Oh, it's funny, isn't it? You know, I, I, isn't it wild what's happening in our nation, you guys? It is crazy. We need to just continue to be praying and praying and praying you know, in a democratic nation, we need leaders who work for the good of the people, not assume the position of gods over the nation. And one of the historical roles of the church and of clergy is to steer clear of politics. It's like, I really have no interest in such things. But when, 
leaders assume the roles of gods, it has to be acknowledged and pointed out, and there needs to be a call to repentance. And as a nation, there is a call to repentance that needs to happen clear across our nation on all parts and on all sides, and we need God to have mercy upon us. We are like on a precipice, and uh, we need to be praying that we are clear-minded as God's people, as God's church, and that God would help us and that we would know what to do. And so, you know, yeah, I I make jokes tongue-in-cheek about hair and socks and such things, but in all seriousness, those who serve in those roles in our nations are not our gods. There is one God, and there is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus, one only. And it's interesting to me that we read here that this description that says Absalom was caught suspended between heaven and earth. Isn't that like a strange statement? It's like he was no longer touching the earth. He was out of touch with things on the earth. He was out of touch with men of the soil, and he didn't belong to heaven. His pride was his undoing. And the only way to escape that kind of pride is with a heart of repentance towards the living God. And there's Absalom, suspended between heaven and earth. But one of the things that we never, ever read in Scripture about Absalom is anything to do with his relationship with the Lord. Never any entrance to the temple, never any bringing sacrifices to the Lord. No no psalms written by him, no heart of repentance or prayer. And so what happens? Well, in verse 10, And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, What, you you saw him? Why then did you not strike him to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son, for in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai for my sake Protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. So this guy called it. He's like, whatever. No amount of money that you could put in my hand would make me raise my hand against Absalom, the king's son. And besides, Job, you would have sold me out if I did. And Job's like, verse 14, I won't waste time with you. And he took three javelins in his hand, thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten, and ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Uh, to me in this situation, there's something about the pragmatism of Joab that I think is like realistic. Lots of times he's doing stupid things in the scriptures. It's, it, but uh, but in, this, in this story, it's like tough to be clear-sighted in terms of What's going on? Absalom, on the part of King David, Absalom isn't a, you know, this isn't a minor rebellion. David is like clouded in his judgment by fatherhood. This boy had made himself a stench in his father's nostrils. That was his whole goal and intention. His rebellion was not minor. So Joab Joab struck him, and then he sent his armor bearers to finish the job. Now, verse 16, lots of text today. Then Joab blew the trumpet, 
And the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest, and they raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own town. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. So the pride of this man, Absalom, is so huge, so great, that he was building monuments to himself while he's still alive, before he had even accomplished anything. What had he done besides being born into the royal family? The, the over-inflated sense of self-importance and pride um, is massive with this guy. And, and, you know, it was probably a monument to his hair. That's what I think about. Probably a monument to his hair because what else had he done? Now, verse 19. Then a high mass, the son of Zadok said, let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hands of his enemies. And Joab said to him, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Now, Ahimaaz was one of the earlier messengers that uh, was hidden in the well and that had run to David with the news. And he wanted the role again. And Joab recognizes, hey man, this isn't the day that you want to be the guy that carries the news to the king. Because it has to do with his son being dead. So Joab says to him, not today, and he selected a foreigner, a Cushite from Ethiopia, uh, to bring the news. Because we know this, like from accounts of David, he didn't always respond super well to folks that brought news of death to him. There was a precedent, you don't want to be this guy. Okay, so verse 22. Then, Ahimai, uh, then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said to Joab, come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. So come what may, I want to run to the king. Verse 24, we'll read through here almost to the end. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, see, another man is running, another man running alone. The king said, he also brings good news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimaaz the son of Zadok. The king said, he is a good man. He comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. And the king says, said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant saw great commotion but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here 
So he turned aside and stood still. Now this is amazing because what you got here is a runner, a messenger with no message. He's got nothing. He's got nothing to tell. You know, what good is a messenger without a message? The Bible says that the the feet of those who bring good news are beautiful. David said, that's a good man. He should have a message of good news. But a high mass ran for nothing because he had nothing to say. You know, Peter, the apostle Peter said this, that you should always be prepared to have an answer, to give an answer for those who would question you about the hope that you have, the reason for your hope. And as I read this, I mean, a lot of texts this morning, I'm like, you know, what are some of the applications from this text? Well, I want to say one is like this. Don't be in a high mass who runs for nothing. Who ran for nothing. Who shadow boxed and never stepped into the ring. Never manned up. Knew the truth and didn't open his mouth. I don't even know why he ran. We don't know why he ran. He just wanted to run and He had no purpose and nothing to say when the king got there. And the church has to be cautious that it's not the same. We run with purpose. We have an answer for those who ask the question, what is the reason for your hope? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He is our hope and our salvation. Now verse 31, And behold, the Cushite came, And the Cushite said, good news for my Lord, the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. The king was deeply moved, went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh Absalom, my son, my son. It's like devastating, you know, to think about this father and his son. And it's like, it's such an interesting reaction from David because remember when his infant son died, the one that was born to Bathsheba, Nathan said, This son, David, because of your sin, this son born to Bathsheba is going to die. And the Bible tells us that David sought the Lord on behalf of that child, that he fasted and prayed and put on sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord and sought the Lord. And and in spite of his seeking, the child died. And then when David got word that the child died, he rose, washed himself, went to the house of the Lord, and worshiped, and his servants are like, David, what's going on here? When the son was alive, you wept it, you wept and fast, and now that he's dead, you, you know, you eat a meal and you go and worship. And David said this to those servants. He said, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. In other words, David had hope that he was going to see that child again in eternity. And as I read this, I think this, that maybe David was weeping here for Absalom because he did not carry the same hope for this child. It's like tragic. In the death of one son, he was comforted because he said, I know I will see him again. 
and then in the death of another, he had no such proclamation to make. That's the reality for all of us when we die. Those alive and left behind can be comforted by the fact that they know I am going to see that person again. I am going to see that family member again. I'm going to see that parent again. I'm going to see that child again. Or they can be left to weep with tears because of the lack of hope. I don't know where they were at with Jesus. I don't know what they had done with eternity. You know, the difference between those two responses and how people will respond to your death when the time comes is by what you do with Christ, is by what you do with the Lord Jesus. And this is the message of the gospel. This is the message of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is hope for those who die in him. That the wages of sin is death, but Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin on the cross, on that tree. He died in our stead, in our place, so that if we would hope and trust in him, we could receive the gift of eternal life. And it's real, isn't it, that gift? It's real. It's something that you don't wait to enter into when you die. It's something that we enter into right now to know Jesus is eternal life. What will be the response when you die? How will those around you respond? It's determined by what we do with Christ. Let's put our hope in him. Let's look to him, the author and finisher of our faith. Let's pray this morning. I'm going to invite Martin and Leanne to come. Would you guys stand with me? Lord Jesus, we just come before you to confess our need of you this morning, Lord. It's apparent in these days. God, we don't want to be left to ourselves. We don't want to trust in other gods, Lord. We want to put our hope fully and squarely on the person who went to the cross on our behalf, died in our place, was buried and raised from the dead so that we might receive the gift of eternal life, salvation. And Jesus, it's our heart and our desire that you would be glorified in our lives individually, in our lives as a church, Lord, in our community, in our nation. And Lord, we just lift up our nation to you this morning, praying, God, that a spirit of repentance will come across our nation. Praying, Lord, that all around this nation from east to west as people are finding voices and speaking up and all sorts of things are happening and government is wrestling with its power and all of these things. Lord, we pray that our nation would not forget that it looks first to the sovereignty of God. To the sovereignty of God. The earth belongs to you, Lord. All that is in it, every life, every tree, everything, every person, every place, it belongs to you, Lord. And Lord, in this morning in faith, we turn our hearts to you. We turn our hearts to you, Lord. God, would you see if there be any wicked way in us, Lord, and cleanse us. 
Wash us in the blood of Jesus. Cleanse us of our sin, Lord. May we turn from sin and repentance and turn to you in faith, Lord. We pray, God, that in these days our vision would grow, Lord, that our message would grow, God. We pray that we would not be men who beat against the air without purpose, Lord, but that we would run with great purpose for the kingdom of God and the message of Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for the hope of eternity, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the reality of eternal life, that knowing you is life. And Lord, this morning I pray that the eternal life that is available in you, Lord, that it would just be manifest in every one of our frames, Lord. Every one of our lives today, that it would be a tangible hope, that it would be a tangible life, Lord, because your kingdom is real. You are real. And so, Lord, we bless you this morning and we thank you, God, for your word. Help us, Lord, to run with purpose, I pray in Jesus' name.